Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is Ken Sanginario. Ken is the founder of the Corporate Value Metrics and creator of the Value Opportunity Profile and also the Certified Value Growth Advisor. Ken has had 30 years of extensive experience in the turnaround world, M&A, and valuations, and has every formal certification under the sun that's associated with these topics. But what Ken brings to the table with his crazy amount of experience and all of his knowledge is the system that he has developed that literally shows business owners what to do with their strategic plan and how to implement it and how to measure that. I think the biggest challenge that we all have is there's the scaling up Rockefeller habits, there's traction, there's all these different consulting practices out there that are very difficult to measure what the value is that we're getting and what are the projects that we're implementing and how do we measure that. Ken's system has 47 subcategories that roll up into eight key drivers that roll up into a business valuation and then can show you and measure every investment of time and money, what that it does to future value, because value is the predictability and sustainability of future cash flows. So measurability is huge because every decision that you make, you wanna make sure that you're going in the right direction to build value. So Ken gives us a little bit of a background on the turnaround work that he did and how he came to the conclusion to build this tool through the discrepancies of the reports that they would give in the turnaround companies to the banks. So he decided that because there's discrepancies in the reports that they would give banks on how well the company was doing, that there needs to be a universal system on how to measure value based on all of these strategic things that companies are doing, and then how to slowly continue to fund your growth through doing the right things. So Ken has a ton of great advice that he brings to us throughout the episode. And he focuses on predictability, sustainability, and transferability of a company and how that creates value so you can have options to do whatever you want in the future with your business. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with Ken. He's got a ton of gold nuggets. And without further ado, here's my episode with Ken. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Ken, how are you doing today? Doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm looking forward to having you on because you've got a really, really depth in knowledge in the the topic that we're going to be talking about. So as we get into building business valuations and building business value, can you give our listeners some of the milestones of how you got to where you are today? Oh, sure. Uh, I've been a, I've been a consultant for about the last 18 years, focused a lot on turnaround. So I've been a turnaround consultant certified and trained and have worked uh, extensively with companies that have been underperforming, sometimes deeply distressed. Sometimes they were deeply distressed and didn't realize they were deeply distressed, but often I would be brought in by uh, private equity firms or uh, bank commercial banks uh, when companies were in default, or sometimes by the business owners themselves. 
and I would take a uh, often take a, a deep dive executive level position, often CEO or chief restructuring officer, and I'd have the mandate to develop and execute a turnaround strategy, and then refinance or recapitalize or sell the company on the back end of, of that turnaround effort. And, and those often would last anywhere from six to 18 months on a full-time basis. So I, I did a, a number of those engagements over the years all around the U.S. And, and some up in Canada as well, and one in Europe as well. Um, so that was part of my practice. I also had a, a part of my practice that was focused on mergers and acquisitions. And typically that was on the back end, back end of a turnaround where if I was involved in a company for six to 18 months, who would know the company better than I? And so I also was trained and certified in mergers and acquisitions, and I could manage that transaction uh, at the back end of the turnaround. And occasionally I'd take a, a, an M&A deal for, for just a really strong, healthy company outside of my turnaround world. But typically they were, they were you know, involved in, in a turnaround before the, the transaction. And then the third sort of big prong of my services was business valuations, which I also went out and got trained and certified. And and uh, and was you, I, I would use the business valuation uh, uh, body of knowledge to help the private equity firms or the banks or the business owners or all of them to understand the value drivers in a in a company, sort of at the beginning of a turnaround, and then be able to measure the impact of improvements that we're making at, at the back end. And then revalue the company at the back end of the process and so forth and get ready for a transaction. So those have been kind of my service prongs. Before, before that time, I was uh, CFO for a few different companies, one public and two private over a span of about 14 years. Did a lot of turnaround work uh, in those capacities as well, uh, in addition to a lot of uh, raising of private equity capital to roll out uh, concepts for a couple of private equity companies. And, and did a lot of uh, restructurings as well. And, and then before that, I was uh, in one of the what used to be the big eight accounting firms back in the back in the uh, <laughs> back in the early and mid '80s, and uh, now the big now the big four. But uh, so that's a thumbnail sketch of kind of what my career has been like. But what I found is all of these different avenues. People would often ask me, "Gee, you're involved in M and A and turnaround and business valuations. Like, how do those?" service segments kind of fit together. And in truth, they fit together better than anybody really realizes because uh, whether you're trying to fix a company, improve the performance, buy or sell a company or value a company, essentially the front end of all of those processes are the same. You need to get a very broad and deep understanding of the entire enterprise as quickly and efficiently as you can. And so that's, that's the commonality. And then after that front end process, of course, the back end process is different for each one of those service segments, but they all, they all impact each other. Um, and they all, there are a lot of similarities in, in the overall processes. So, well, it's interesting of, because like, I mean, through all those different experiences, you get the whole 360 picture of the company. Instead of just approaching it from one silo and from one specific angle. Exactly. You really need to get in. Even though my, my background was in finance, uh, you really need to become an operationally focused financial expert. So 
you need to be able to dig into, you know, at, at the really in, into the weeds of the company and understand everything there is to understand about the company and where the root drivers are rather than the symptoms of problems. A lot of times business owners or private equity firms or banks even, um, they think they understand where the problems are on a company. And, and too often those, those perceived problems really are only symptoms of problems that are being driven by sometimes a multitude of factors that are, that are elsewhere in the company and they don't even realize that. Well, it's a ripple and, effect. <laughs> I mean, exactly. the, the financial, the financials tell a narrative, but the narrative is in the people. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. It's everything is about the people and the systems and processes and everything they have set up and, uh, operations and the, the efficiencies and inefficiencies. So I found over the years that, uh, virtually every company is underperforming in some, in some way. Uh, even healthy companies could be a lot healthier if they understood where where they're weak, where their weaknesses are, or where they might be uh, imbalanced as a, as an organization. So, and I want to dive into that because that kind of comes a lot into what you're doing right now. But before we do that, I, I sure. want to just uh, peel back a little bit on some of the turnaround because um, I was in a very distressed family business when I first started. Um, we kind of had our own turnaround and. Uh, First of all, the, the, the callousness that you must have <laughs> and the ability to deal with stress has got to be pretty phenomenal to, to want to go back over and over and over again. Um, but I'm just, I'm just curious because, you know, today, and we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll talk about how you've applied all of your experience and knowledge into understanding this in a very deep way. But, you know, as you would go into these turnarounds, what was some of the first things that you would see? Or I guess what would be the first thing that you used to do? The first couple of things that you do, because I mean, you're essentially getting thrown right into the fire. That's absolutely right. I mean, sometimes I'd get a phone call on a Friday uh, from, from somebody saying, Hey, we have this client and they're not going to be able to make payroll next Thursday. Can you be on the, <laughs> can you be on the ground Monday morning? And it's, you know, halfway across the country. And you don't have money by the way. Right. <laughs> and, and they have no money. Yeah. And there's no money. No, no you're money not the one with the money, right? So you're going there. You're not just going to write a check. You're going to, to fix the problem. I'm going to fix the problem. Yeah. They're not calling me for capital. They're calling <laughs> me to, to come and uh, keep the company out of pull the company out of the fire. They're not always that level of crisis, but sometimes they were. But uh, but often, yeah, the first thing you have to do is quickly get your arms around the cash flows of the company, and that's usually the, the first thing you you do is um, just corral everybody and and get a thorough under thorough understanding of of cash flows and liabilities and what who the supply chain uh, is and which ones are uh, shutting you off, which ones are critical, which ones you have to talk to right away to keep things moving. The, the, the first step is to keep the company running. Because mm -hmm. if the company shuts down, uh, it's very difficult for them to get back up and running. So you need to understand the cash flows and then understand the supply chain at, sort of in parallel. And, um, and then understand the customer base and what what's in the sales pipeline and uh, just get a, you know, we, we would always build a, a 13 week at a minimum, a 13 week, very detailed cash flow to be able to manage all of that. Um, and then as soon as you get that under control and that often, sometimes that would take a week or longer just to talk with individual suppliers or customers or the bank or who's ever, you know, putting pressure on the company to get everybody to just sort of step back take a breath. It's going to be okay. 
there's a business here. We'll be able to make it. We need we need everybody to kind of remain calm. And that's a big <laughs> the voice of, of reasoning, it. right? It is. It really is. I mean, that's a big part of what a turnaround consultant does is, is keep everybody calm so that you can think through the issues in a methodical way and not react, but rather respond to the challenges appropriately and be able to, to put in permanent fixes, not quick fixes that won't last. Uh, but you need patience from everybody. And so that's typically how it how it would go to start off. And the longer you're there, the more permanent and long-term improvements you can make and changing culture and things like that takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, but it's amazing at the end of a process when you look back and you hear management teams say to you as they're now have returned to profitability and they say, gosh, I, I just can't even believe the way that we used to run this company <laughs> and where we are today now. So doesn't take many of those to get into your blood and then you're hooked. So when you say mm-hmm. you must be callous, it just sort of, you know, it just, it's, it's a very rewarding uh, feeling to be able to turn around a company like that and see them return to prosperity and, and so forth. So, well, and, and what you've done now, and we can kind of, cause I, there's so many different things we can dive into as we talk about your methodology. Um, but just one quick question about that is how many people in the, the mid-market space that you're going into actually had a cash flow statement when you went, when you went in? Um, none. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, I mean, right. pretty much none. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, they would, you know, they would, they might have a little bit of a spreadsheet, but it wouldn't, it was never at a granular enough level. And usually they were, you know, relying heavily on bank float, you know, mm-hmm. uh, trying to predict when checks would cash or they'd have, you know, you'd walk in and they'd have 200 checks cut and they'd be sitting on the, the windowsills of, of CFO's offices or controller's offices. And there might be 12 weeks worth of checks that were cut and not being sent. And they would, you know, pull pull checks out here and there as they were getting pressured by the suppliers and so forth. Uh, you know, I've got a horrible visualization right now from my old yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> like, hey, wrong. this person yeah. yelled harder than the other person. So we got to exactly. get their check first today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But nobody really had a good handle on, you know, where the company was or, mm-hmm. or how they were going to get out of their predicament. So let's, t- let's talk about how you've taken all of this knowledge and you a little bit about your practice because you know your practice has to do with all of the, these value building uh, strategies that you have. So kind of let's give the listeners a little bit of a backdrop of what you do now, and then we can kind of start peeling it back all the different types of ways to build value within a company. Sure. So back when the recession hit in 2008, we were getting engaged by some of the larger banks uh, the national banks and the, the workout groups in particular of those banks. As the workout groups were getting inundated with troubled corporate borrowers that were getting pushed into workout, the workout groups needed help just triaging the influx. They were engaging us to go into the field, spend a week or two assessing the company, and then writing a report and coming back to the bank and giving them an indication of, hey, is this is this company a train wreck that we need to fix right away? Or can we put it on the back burner while we deal with other more urgent companies? Can it be fixed? If so, how? And can you help fix it? So we started doing a lot of these types of assessment engagements. And 
as we were doing those, it occurred to me, a couple of things occurred to me. One was that if I assessed a particular client and then one of my partners went, if they were to go to assess the same client, um, our, our conclusions would probably end up to be the same because we all were very good at what we did, but our reports would look very different. Our writing styles were different. We covered different issues and different sequences and different depths and so forth. And it occurred to me that gee, there really should be a standardized approach to assess a company like this, especially companies that are in trouble, where we could do it efficiently, but have our reports all follow a standard, a standard flow. So that if a, if a bank was looking at 10 of our reports, they would know that all 10 of those reports were going to look sort of look and feel the same. Then I thought, well, gee, if we can somehow figure out a way to assign some sort of scoring system to our assessments, then the bank could really easily just look at a score to figure out which company they needed to work on first, sort of like the way a triage works in a, in a medical, and emergency, medical emergency ward or something like that. And then, uh, so, so that got me thinking about standardizing an approach, but then I thought, well, gee, that's the turnaround, sort of turnaround background, the body of knowledge that I'm bringing into that process. But what would happen if we could ever incorporate the body of knowledge from the M&A industry, the due diligence part in particular? Uh, and what would happen if we could also incorporate the body of knowledge from the business valuation industry and somehow integrate those three bodies of knowledge to be able to turn a process into not only an assessment or not only a business valuation or not only a due diligence exercise, but a way to use those processes in a, in a more strategic approach to help companies, maybe companies that were already healthy to become healthier. If we could somehow conduct an assessment, incorporate the due diligence concepts and tie those to a business valuation component, then we could use it to be able to explain to business owners at a deeper level sort of why their value, their current baseline value is what it is. And these are the weaknesses that came out of the, the due diligence type assessment. And if we strengthen those weak areas, therefore, we could also show them what the impact might be on the value of their, of their companies. So that was, the, that was the thought process that I had to integrate these three disciplines and create a strategic process and a strategic system that, well, I was de developing it initially for our firm, for my firm, but once I developed it, it took me a year to develop the first uh, prototype and then another year to sort of calibrate it on, uh, you know, beta test it and calibrate it using in-house files and then another year to beta test it on live clients, live paying clients in the field and then two more years to rebuild it in the cloud. So it was a five-year-long development process before we launched. But it was a very rigorous development process. And, the, and once we completed that, I realized that this has application far beyond our little consulting firm. This is something that really could change several industries. It could change the valuation industry. It could change the consulting industry in the, in the middle market space. So this is something that we should really be licensing out to other firms around the country. And so that's, that's the model that we adopted. So my business today is still partly 
doing some consulting, but that part of it is really just to keep me fresh and sharp on the on the, the three bodies of knowledge. So I do a little valuation work. I do some M&A and due diligence, and I, and I do a lot of performance improvement or value enhancement kind of work with clients using our system and our process. And then the bigger part of my practice now is expanding the rollout of of using the software to some large national firms, some super regional firms, and all the way down to some, you know, one and two man consulting firms, people anywhere from turnaround consultants, M&A advisors, business evaluators, CPAs, and other just sort of general business consultants who license the use of our software and our, and our process. Uh, we, we teach and train them and uh, certify them if they want to go that far and how to conduct this kind of service, how to provide the service and how to provide the implementation of the results of, of the upfront assessment part of it. And that's, that typically is a, a process of working with companies for anywhere from two to four or five years at a, you know, at a time. Yeah. Now you so. can't move the needle right away. And I mean, right. even though it, it's interesting because when you were saying you're doing your, your turnaround work, I mean, you were doing stuff in six to 18 months, which is pretty mind boggling fast because of how much stuff you probably had to do. Um, yeah. and so what I love about your system and in how you've brought, how you bring it to a clarity. And that's where I want to kind of, cause I think a lot of business owners, they, we struggle with how do we see this, right? Because I mean, there's things called, you know, traction or scaling up in the Rockefeller habits. There's all these different ways of running your business. But yeah, you know, where my whole story came from is how do you, the, the value is the most important part. That's how you should make all of your decisions. And then all of your strategic rocks or plans or milestones should, should drive from the value of your company. And so what I love about how you've integrated your turnaround, your M&A and your valuation expertise is, you have to start from the numbers and building value of the niche of the industry that you're in. So your your tool does a very good job at that. But we'll, let's kind of you know do a little peek into the the, the world that you're measuring. So sure. outside you know outside of top line and bottom line, which I think everybody can you know can uh, is constantly concerned about, even the people that have you know bury any kind of cash flow statements. But outside of that, what are some of the main things that you're looking at? And then we can maybe you know dive a f- further into some of the most the, the most crucial key drivers. Sure. So, a lot of people when you when you use the term value, that can mean a lot of different things to different people. But one common theme of the, the concept of value is that value is really a prophecy of what the future holds for a particular company, and it's far less related to what's happened in the past than it is related to what will happen in the future. And even in a healthy company, if a healthy company had a, has a couple of strong years, but they really don't have the, the organization in place to be able to sustain those, those strong years or create predictability into the future of those strong years, then that company will likely not have a lot of value. It won't have value commensurate with maybe the couple strong years that it's had. So the idea of value being a prophecy of the future suggests that the higher quality the company, the more predictable that company's cash flow stream or benefit streams will be in the future. Profitability or cash flows are often used interchangeably, but we use cash flows in the valuation world primarily to calculate value. So if you think about 
the quality of a company and you think about what's the flip side of quality, the flip side of quality is risk. So a high quality, a high quality company will have a lot of sustainability and predictability of future cash flows. A low quality company is a riskier company in terms of being able to sustain or predict its future cash flow. So that sort of concept is relatively simple. Which, uh, sorry, I want to interrupt you for one sec because you could have a very profitable, risky business. And I think that's one of these things that a lot of people forget because, well, I mean, let's take the construction industry potentially. I mean, because there's a lot of very profitable, you know, projects that are out there, but what's the predictability of the future? Absolutely. That's exactly right. You can have a company that they could, they could have had a banner year or a couple years, but if those, if that profitability is not sustainable and predictable, then it's not going to be highly valuable because the 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 the, the, the prophecy of the future, um, it, you know, just isn't there. The, the predictability of the future just isn't there. So. As your okay, so this predictability, I really like how you've phrased that because I've I've used transferable or transferable, you know, because it's easily easily transferable to someone else, which again is predictable. So how what are the ways that are that you measure this predictability? Well, um, before uh, before I answer that, I'm glad you brought up the concept of of transferability because that's even that's another concept. You can have a company that is very healthy and strong and profitable and it could even it may even be sustainable and it may even have a highly predictable future as long as the current owner or ceo remains in place right because all of the knowledge base all of the all of the expertise might be in that owner's head and that could be a that could be a, a highly valuable company in the uh, hands of its current owner, but the value is not transferable on the outside because if that owner were to retire or become unable to lead the company or leave the company in a sale, say, then a lot of the value would leave with the owner. So the value is not transferable to a buyer. And huh. so, yep. And there's and that and that ranges between a lot of different company sizes too, because there's very you know large mid-market companies where a lot of the stuff's reliant, a lot of the decisions still go through the owner. Absolutely right. And the, the, the best companies with the highest sustainability, predictability, and transferability of value are those companies that take the expertise and institutionalize the knowledge and expertise uh, uh, into the organization. So the organization can run independently of the owner. So if you think about transferability of value, it's think about a, a, a crane reaching into the company, lifting out the current <laughs> owner, swapping them out in the parking lot, and dropping in an independent operator who doesn't know the business very well and putting them in the owner's chair. Now what's the value of the company? If, <laughs> if all of the expertise is now out in the parking lot, there's not a lot of value to that company. Mm-hmm. So... To answer your question in terms of the things that, that the factors that we measure, we measure the, the qualitative elements uh, of a company across the entire enterprise and how well the knowledge and expertise has been institutionalized. So we look at, we look at 47 different categories across the company, um, eight primary categories that we, we consider to be the, 
the eight categories that every company has to have in place, fully developed, fully functioning, and very importantly, in balance with each other in order to reach peak, per peak effectiveness and maximum value. Those eight categories, there's a lot of science behind them. They're, they're, they're planning, leadership, sales, marketing, people, operations, finance, and legal. And those are the eight primary categories. We then take those and break them down into 47 subcategories. And then we go through methodically and assess the company across those 47 categories and against a theoretical best-in-class scale. Mm -hmm. So how close is the company in each category to being a best-in-class company? Best-in-class company would imply highest quality, lowest risk in that, in that particular category. And then if you, if you can take that approach across the entire enterprise and then measure how well the company is established in each of the areas, roll up all of your scores and come up with an overall quality slash risk score, two sides of the same coin, you can then have an indication of where that company would fall in, a, in the spectrum of a valuation. So, and, and by yeah, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, so are you like taking like you know sick codes or something like that, or industry, you know, where you're able to compare it to other like uh, companies that are, so you can come up with that risk score or the valuation, or because obviously you roll all those up into like one number, right? Yeah, so <clears throat> we don't look at SIC codes. We we do we do look at published best practices by industry. And our industries are sort of broad, you know, manufacturing is an industry for us. Professional services is an industry. So we're not looking at the real fine level industries, but best practices are best practices. And uh, they're, they're most often the fundamentals of running a quality business. And so we look at best published best practices by major industry category and we roll those into our assessment criteria. So when you're, you know, you got the eight primary categories um, and then you get the 47 subcategories. So on the surface as, as an entrepreneur, I, I think the biggest challenge, like if you would have came to me when we were in the middle of the firestorm and we were to do this, how in the heck do you start? It seems super daunting. That seems like a lot of stuff when all you're doing is trying to, to hit payroll. So how do you, how does a business owner tackle this entire project? Yeah, so I mean, if I went into a company that was in crisis, I would I would first get the cash flow under quickly under control and make sure that the supply chain wasn't going to be interrupted. Uh, make sure that the customer and sales pipeline was not going to be interrupted. I would do sort of some of that initial triage kind of work, uh, but but as soon as practicable. I would dig in and do this assessment. And the assessment only takes, it takes, it takes about a day to go through. Basically, you sit with the management team in a, in a conference room on site or off site, and you walk through a standardized interview process. So we ask about roughly 400 questions. And the questions are discussed, the questions are answered on a, typically on a scale of zero to 10, with 10 being best in class, no room for improvement, and so forth. And we ask the management team to, as a group, to answer the questions. So you're asking the management team to answer questions about 
parts of the, the company that they may or may not even be involved in. And often there's a lot of value in that process alone because for the first time, the management team is being exposed to parts of the business that they don't typically even have to think about. But what kind of questions really, are you asking? Well, we might ask, um, so I'll give you an example. On, uh, one of the subcategories is called strategic planning, and we might ask five questions. So the first question might be on a scale of zero to 10, does the company have a fully developed written strategic business plan? And <laughs> a 10, so a 10 means fully developed and written, and basically it, it covers all of the functional areas of the company. And they might say, their first answer might be, oh, sure, we're, an, we're a seven. And we'd say, okay, well, could I see the plan? Uh, well, it's kind of in pieces. Okay, what are the pieces? And could I see them? Well, we have projections for next year. And we have some sales quotas. Okay, what else? Uh, that's probably about it. All right, that's, that would maybe, maybe be a one on a scale <laughs> of zero to 10. Yeah. Uh, that's not a strategic plan. That's a, that's a tactical operating plan. Not even, it's not even a full tactical plan, never mind strategic plan. So we, we educate them as we go, and it doesn't take them very long before they understand the calibration. And we, give, we, we help them calibrate their answers. But in doing that, in going through that process, the management team's eyes get opened to how misaligned they are as a group, how dysfunctional they are as a group, how differently they each perceive the strengths and weaknesses of the, of the company. Because there's a lot of discussion and debate that goes on about where they think their strengths and weaknesses are. So they leave that first day session really feeling like, okay, we, for the first time, we're we're, we are becoming aligned in how we think about our company, our business, and where we're strong and where we're weak. And so that's the that's the sort of foundation of the process. We can Well, if you, go ahead. If, I was just going to say, if you think about it too, or, you know, I, I think it, it's, the, you know, even strategic planning, which has been said, you know, in the consulting world for years, and it's just always, like the strategic plan has never been aligned. Like you have kind of brought it all together with the valuation and like actually understanding what your business is like in the eyes of a buyer. Cause like, can you imagine like if you were to ask me to buy a company where they're like that whole management team is misaligned, they got no plan. Why would you want to buy that company? And if you keep thinking that way, you're going to realize that you're, there's a reason you need to do this instead of just doing it to feel better. No, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, companies that go through the strategic planning program that we, that we offer and that we teach to other consultants, uh, they, they, companies never come out the back end of that process looking like they did coming in the front end. It is a very transformative process. They come out the, the other end as a much different looking, feeling, thinking company, much more disciplined, much more focused, much more uh, directed in terms of where they're going, how they're going to get there. There's a lot more accountability that ends up you know, being part of the process and so forth. And they run their companies differently going forward, and the results show that. They end up positioning themselves differently in the marketplace, growing faster, stronger, they get margin and profitability expansion, and they dramatically increase value. But it all starts with kind of the upfront assessment, which we view to be the current state of the company. And then we use the strategic planning process as the future state. And how do we get from the current state to the future state? So the pieces go hand in hand. 
Well, so how how do you approach that? Because you know, out of the eight primary and the forty seven categories, and without obviously going into every single one of them. Is there low-hanging fruit that you approach first? Because you know it, you only have so much time and so much capital right. in your business. So, how do you start aligning those puzzles? Is is there a common three areas or you know places where you normally see a, a big bang for your buck because of where things are at? I'm just you know something maybe a little bit more actionable for the listeners. Where you know does that make sense? How do you like yeah. really dive in and how do you how do you prioritize yeah. all those things? That's a great question. And so a couple ways. One is our 47 categories are each assigned a level of priority, priority one, two, or three. And those are pre-assigned. They don't change company to company. Level one are the highest priority categories that we, we call level one the protect level. And it's designed to protect company against downside risks that could really damage the company's future. So those are foundational level kind of categories like does the company have a full insurance package in place and in force? If the company doesn't have proper insurance coverage, that, that clearly would be a high priority level one category because a, a disaster of some kind, an act major accident or something could literally put the company mm-hmm. out of business. So that's, those are level one. And, and pr- roughly about a third of the 47 categories are level one priority categories. Level three are categories that are relevant if the company aspires to high growth in the next several years. If they are happy just lumping along where they've been for the last 20 years you know, into the future, and they don't want to grow aggressively, then some of the level three categories might not be important for them. It still mm-hmm. might, it will still hold them back from being best in class, but they maybe don't care about being best in class if they're happy with where they are. Something My like, guess is level three takes capital and more risk. Um, some, sometimes yes, sometimes no. An, an example might be a board of directors. And if the company uh, yeah, is just yeah. lumping along and they don't, they're happy with where they are, maybe they don't need a board of directors. But if they want to double or triple in sales in the next two or three years, and they're not, the management team is not highly experienced at growing a company that fast and navigating the growth challenges, well, then maybe they do need a board of directors. That's a level three to help them uh, navigate the challenges and be able to succeed. So that's a level three. Level two are kind of all the categories that are in between, which so they're not life-threatening, but they're still very important in terms of enhancing the quality of the company and increasing value. So mm-hmm. some, something a, a level two might have to do with some of their IT systems. Okay, they're getting by right now. It's not mission critical that they change or improve their systems, but they really could become more efficient and add value to the company if they if they brought in a, an updated system or change change their you know put in an ERP system or something like mm-hmm. that. So th- some of those do take do take capital. So with these priorities, you know, if as you're going back to the, you've only got so much time and so much capital. Now we've got a prioritization system behind here. How do you quantify the return on investment? And, and, and before you answer that, I think one of the biggest uh, topics that's come up in multiple other episodes or with uh, um, owners that I work with is it's always that next level management team where to go from, you know, your typical 80 to $100,000 manager, that's your ops manager to the, you know, mid six figure that, you know, 150 grand top executives with, you know, profit sharing, whatever. 
it comes straight out of their pocket and there's always this like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but on the back end, it should increase your multiple or you should get a, you know, a significant return on that depending on when and how you transfer it. But how are all of these different things? Are you able to measure the actual return? Because yeah. it's not necessarily annual cash flow return. It's actually return on value. How do you measure that? Right. So the way that we measure it is if, if you think about, again, going back to value being about the future. So we're looking at we're looking at future cash flows of the company and what are the what's the value of those future cash flows based on the current risk and quality profile of the company. So the higher the quality, again, the higher the value of those future cash flows because they're more predictable, more sustainable. So what we what we do, therefore, is to calculate the the value of those future cash flows. We're using a discount rate. We're basically discounting future cash flows back to present value. And the discount rate is a, is a reflection of the relative riskiness of the company or the relative quality of the company. So we have all of our 47 categories directly linked to the calculation of that discount rate. And without getting too technical about the way the discount rates work, it's the discount rate includes it, it's a it, it's a well well known well taught uh, widely used methodology in the business valuation world that's called the, the build up method to come up to a discount rate and the build up method includes a cost of equity it includes a, a cost of debt and it includes a capital structure, a mix of equity and debt in the capital structure. And each one of those are risk-adjusted. So you have a risk-adjusted cost of equity, a risk-adjusted cost of debt, and a risk-adjusted uh, mix or, or blend in the capital structure. So what we do is we connect all of those 47 assessed categories to the risk level that impacts the capital structure that in turn impacts the discount rate that in turn impacts the value calculation on the business. And so by identifying uh, any particular weaknesses that may be low-hanging fruit, may be high priority, may be needed to bring the company, the eight primary categories, more into balance with each other, and I'll come back to that in a minute because that's important, but by, by tagging each category to that discount rate, we can do what-if analysis. What if we improve these 10 areas over the next 18 to 24 months, what impact would that have on the discount rate and therefore on the calculation of value? So that's, that's, so it's a direct answer to my question. <laughs> that's essentially how we do it. Yeah. And, uh, and the balance part of it is that um, often we find companies that they, they might be really strong in one or more of the eight categories, primary categories, and really weak in other ones. So for an example, like an engineering-driven company might be very strong in operations. They might be very strong in the systems part of the company because they're systems-focused kind of people, but they might be very weak in the natural opposite areas of their, of their discipline. Like maybe they're very weak in people or very weak in marketing because that's just not their mm -hmm. natural strength. But when we ask them where they're investing their time and money and resources to grow the company, Ironically, they're investing it typically in the areas that where they're already strongest. And we have to yeah, explain to yeah. them because that's their comfort zone. And we have to explain that that's not getting that that's not getting you one dollar of additional growth capacity, additional profitability or additional value, because the weakest areas are your constraints to building value and growing the company. 
And so until you bring uh, those weak, so true. until you bring those weak areas up to be more in balance, those will be your constraints. So focus, get yourselves out of your comfort zone. Let's focus on the weakest areas first and the level one priority areas within those weak areas. Bring the company into balance as best we can, and then strengthen and invest in all eight categories equally as time goes on. So you're growing the company toward best in class altogether in a balanced manner. Yeah, I, I can relate to that because coming from the copier and IT industry, it's just a whole industry full of sales sales guys and gals. And that's always where your new dollars went was to hiring more salespeople. Yeah. And you know, had the had the whole industry not gotten uh, squeezed and got more competitive, um, that's when people started all of a sudden focusing on operations and service and actually tracking all that stuff because you you need to squeeze the turn up even more. But it took it took many decades for the for that industry to get mature on the other parts of the business. Yeah, often when we we see a lot of companies that are becoming commoditized, and uh, in fact, I just met with an owner a couple of days ago this week who it's a you know fifteen million dollar service company, and he said I, I feel like we're in a long slow death spiral. We're, be, we're getting squeezed on price from our customers. We're getting squeezed on costs because of the rising cost of labor. And I can't pass the rising labor costs through to my customers. And I don't know where, I don't know how to get out of this. We're still profitable, but our profits are rapidly shrinking year by year. And I don't know where the future is. And it's, it's hard. Those kinds of companies have to find a new business model. They have to figure out a different way mm -hmm. to compete in the marketplace other than strictly on price. And, uh, so let's yeah. let's take that example for a second because I think it's a good one. So let's say he's he was going he or she was going through this system, and technically this fifteen million dollar business is balanced in the eight key categories because they've been using your system for a while. Sure. Um, is there part part of the process that is exploring new avenues of revenue or new business models? Because I think that's always a challenge trying to. I mean, when there's so many companies and so many industries where you have to almost double down because the S curve, they have to like, you know, reinvent themselves. And understand, I think the biggest challenge is understanding, is it worth it? That's kind of where my dad and I kind of got to the point in the copier industry. Is it worth doubling down and building out the whole IT services? And we weren't really sure because we couldn't measure the value. So how do you, how do you address that kind of yes, situation? So we address those questions directly in our strategic planning program. And that that program, by the way, is a six-month-long strategic planning process, very rigorous process. We follow a formal framework, some of which we, we use you know, existing frameworks that are in the public domain, and, and then we have our own proprietary parts that we add into it, and we teach our process as well to, to consultants. But it's, a, it's basically um, about 12 half days with a management team spread over six months. And we go through some of the strategic frameworks that include whether the company should develop new markets for their existing services, new services for their existing markets, or a combination of new markets and, and new services and sort of diversify their, their uh, market positioning and so forth. So there are all these frameworks that we go through. And how are you going to market? How are you connecting with your customers? Are you doing it? by having a deeper understanding, a customer intimacy level of knowledge with your customers? Or are you doing it by trying to be uh, the cost leader so you can, you can, you can thrive in a commodity-based kind of industry? Or are you trying to be some sort of product or service innovator and leader in the marketplace so you can increase your prices that way? So there, 
different frameworks that we take management teams through and we assess, we assess the most appropriate strategic frameworks for the companies. And then we think about how to structure the company around those frameworks, because whatever you whatever they select has implications, downstream implications on the way they organize and structure their company, the type of people that they recruit, how they train and retain them, the systems that they use and so forth, how they price their services, depending on the, the high level strategies that they adopt for their companies. It has a lot of ripple effect down through the organization. And so we take them through that. And one, one company in particular that I, I, I like to use as our poster child, they were in a commodity business five years ago. Uh, they were a contract manufacturer, again, getting squeezed on price, getting, um, getting squeezed on supply material uh, costs and labor costs and so forth. But every company has some unique proposition that they can bring to market that nobody else can bring. And part of this process is to figure out what that is. And most often, companies don't even know what it is. In the example of my client from five years ago, they had a particular expertise in their engineering. They were really, really good at, develop, at product development, helping customers develop their products to take cost out of the development, out of the product, and have a better developed product for manufacturing. They were giving away that service. and they were basically trying to, to give that away in order to get the commodity level manufacturing. Once we figured that out through strategic planning, we repositioned them from being a contract manufacturer to being a solutions provider. We had them go engage with their client base instead of at the fulfillment level of their customers. We had them go and, and engage at the C-suite level and try to get into the process of helping them develop their new products early in the development chain. And so they were able to increase their level of uh, high level of relationships with their customers, get engineering contracts that were at a premium, and then they were getting handed the commodity level manufacturing without it even going out to bid. So they were no longer competing on price alone. They were competing on just basically the relationships that they've been able to establish. So where they, when you go ahead. And you were, you were able to measure the whole thing after you did it too, which we, is the most beautiful part. Absolutely. We could measure it not only in the predictability and reliability and sustainability of their business going forward, but now they've, they, they've grown uh, almost 50% from where they were back then in top line. And they've grown by more than 100, about probably 150% at the EBITDA level. And so wow. their value has, you know, their value has, probably tripled or, or quadrupled now from where they were five years ago. And it's because they, they've adopted this program and they, they're totally committed and totally focused. They've developed the disciplines around it. They run their company based on this process now. So um, because you and I both had, uh, kind of a, together attacked the same problem of exit planning, value building, how do you, how do you look to the end in mind, understanding when you're doing that, how old your I mean, financially, because you're doing the discounted cash flow. So no matter what, if you're doing the right things, a financial buyer will be available, hopefully, if you're hitting the right size, because you're building a well-oiled machine. So someone will hopefully buy you no matter what. But are you like, are you helping, you know, as you kind of go through this, because it, it's super important as you're looking at when and how you want to exit with your timing, you know, the amount of money that has to go into all that, because 
I just think about our old business where, you know, when we were going, we, we could have used your services greatly because we would double down and did IT services, software. And when re reality, we were a copier business and we, a lot of people were jumping into that, but there was no way to measure that and building the value depending on where you wanted to go. Yeah. So we try to start companies off. If they're not in crisis, then we try to start them off making small changes, small bites at first. Let's get some wins under our belt. Let's, let, let's get the organization feeling what it feels like to succeed, to make a change that works. Let's get them feeling the impact of some small changes first. They, when you make small changes and they start to take effect, um, the small changes can start to fund more small changes. And those small changes combined with the first set can start to fund bigger changes. And so mm -hmm. over time, yes, the company does have to make an investment into this process, but over time, the improvements start to self-fund the, the process. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, it, and if you can measure the impact on value in advance, and then you can also measure the expected improvement in top line and bottom line, which will add even more value, then you can assess that against, well, how much is it going to cost? And how do we stage these improvements? How do we stage the changes uh, in terms of cost and bandwidth for the team and so forth? And so you can kind of plan it out over as much or as little time as the owner wants to spend and as much or as little money as the owner wants to invest. So you can craft Because you can measure it. <laughs> you can measure, you can measure it. Measure you can, it. Yeah, so you can craft a customized plan you can say, look, if you spend, you know, three hundred thousand dollars over the next eighteen months, your value might increase by two million dollars or three million dollars. Ideally, you know, if you can get a ten x impact on the on what you're investing, most business owners are are going to be, you know, willing to do that. You know, the reason I think this is so damn important is, I, I mean. So our business, again, we were just spending money trying to reinvent ourselves, having zero idea how to gauge it. Um, and there's, a, are you familiar with Traction? Yes, I've read the book. I, yeah, so you yeah. got Traction, you got Scaling Up, you got all these things. That I, and I think it's fantastic because it puts a lot of clarity in how to run your business with the meetings, with your vision, all that kind of stuff. Right. But um, where my biggest gripe with it is, is it doesn't measure value. Right. So we... You could implement really, really bad th ideas really fast, but it does. You have no idea how the how it, to measure the rate of return that you had with the investment or the strategy that you had, because it's all up to the the visionary of the business to just pick something random that they want to do. Yeah, that's so true. And uh, one of the big reasons why it's hard to get business owners to implement change, and and it's and it's hard for consultants to succeed, is is. The point that you just made it unless you quantify the impact of changes business owners it's just too fuzzy for them yes i understand <laughs> this should make my business stronger and healthier but i don't really know how much and i don't know if i want to spend the time to even try to measure it how am i going to measure it? it's too subjective and it's too easy to kind of blow it off at that point and the other thing is there are so many issues that they have in their heads that it's hard for them to get their arms around and prioritize which ones they should work on first and what the impact of any of them will be. And so they end up doing nothing. So they end up just succumbing to inertia, basically. And, uh, 
are trying things that just they don't work and their organizations resist change because the organizations don't understand the, what, what to expect for an impact either. If you can educate the owner and their management teams as to what the impact these changes uh, will have, um, you, get, you get a lot more buy-in from everybody to, uh, to adopt change and make that part of their culture. Well, yeah, you know exactly what the ramifications are. I mean, it, it's so funny because, you know, it all, I, whether people, the owners do it in intuitively where they're making decisions because they kind of have the numbers in their head and they've always got the, these basic KPIs where ours was machines in the field or service. I mean, they got these KPIs that they normally measure sure. and then the cash flow, And then that's just the basic baseline that they're measuring on their head or a basic financial dashboard. But every decision literally comes down to the numbers and then you can actually make a good decision of whether you want to make the investment or not or right. whether you want to sell it to the internal people or sell it to a strategic buyer because they're all related because i i don't know how you can make decisions if you can't quantify it yeah no i i totally agree with you and um and and even if they um even if they feel like they can make decisions how do they know which ones they should be doing in what sequence so our mm -hmm. process because it's prioritized and you can look at which ones will help us create better balance in the company as well as as, as well as create the most value and, and and that helps them prioritize what they should work on first otherwise they end up it becomes just an ad hoc process whichever whatever is the sort of flavor of the day is what they end up working on yeah flavor I, or i what we use it was always we go to a trade show and with all of our industry uh, companions across the U.S. And then everybody's got these random ideas at the bar. And then you go back and you're completely distracted for like six months and no yeah. idea why you did it. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and organizations resist that because they know it was concocted at a bar at a straight show. <laughs> and they're like, why are you putting us through this, you know, this all this pain when we know this mm -hmm. isn't going to stick? But if you mm -hmm. go with a if you go with a process that's proven and it's disciplined and it's methodical and they can see the impact as you go and it's small changes to start and bigger ones as they get more comfortable with the process, that's how you get change to stick over the long term. It's like somebody going on a crash diet. You get these people that go on crash diets and they lose a bunch of weight, but six months later they've gained back all the weight and then some, right? Because it wasn't really it was just a crash diet. There was no methodology to it. Um, mm -hmm. As opposed to people that have a true lifestyle change, health, healthful lifestyle changes um, that, you know, they, they change their lifestyle and it, and it sticks permanently. And, and it has to happen one little thing at a time. One little, I mean, yeah. One little bit at a time. I was talking to this guy. Uh, um, his name is David Horsager. He wrote the book, uh, The Trust Edge, and he was talking about habits too. And the 21 days is pretty much BS. And then Ray Dalio's new book, Principles, was talking about it's like 100, it's uh, 18 months. Yeah. But you literally start where, so David Horsager was saying, he did the habit style change by just cutting out any kind of pop. And that's just one thing at a time. And again, you can't go in and overhaul your whole company. So you have to get those endorphins going with the yeah. little wins otherwise everybody's going to be pissed off <laughs> that's right exactly right yeah so as we're kind of wrapping up here ken um what are is there something you want to highlight uh that we've talked about because we've talked a lot of, about a lot of stuff or one thing you want to leave the listeners with i think the main point is that ver I, so i've been working with private middle market companies now for 30 years as 
CFO, as consultant, um, as a CPA in my early days. And one thing I, I can tell you with high level confidence is that every private company is underperforming. I've never seen a company that's been best in class across the whole spectrum. So every company is underperforming to some degree, some more than others, but they often don't even realize that they're underperforming. They all need help. They all could use a fresh set of eyes, a fresh perspective to help them understand how to get their companies into better balance and to be able to support, to better support long-term growth and profitability. And owners need to be educated about a process, about a process like this, some sort of discipline, methodical process doesn't have to be ours. Although I, I think ours works really well, but there are others, <laughs> there, there are others as well. And whatever, whatever process you use, have a process. If you're a, an advisor or a consultant, have a process. Don't just go in ad hoc. Have companies. a process that you can measure. Have a right? process that you can measure and that is repeatable because and that is that is proven and your owner your owner clients will have a lot more confidence in it they'll be willing to start the process um more you know more readily and uh you'll have you'll have a lot more success and business owners if, if any are listening uh be be open you you need help all business owners are underperforming to some degree i've never met a company that wasn't so um yeah. Well, I think, you know, what your approach, Ken, is just so different with the fact that you can measure it. You know, I, I being a victim of spending lots and lots and lots of money and wasted time and energy with consultants that can't measure crap and they come in, distract everybody and leave, it is just beyond frustrating. Right. And to be able to measure something and measure how well you're doing and well, how well the, the dollars you're investing in is important. Absolutely. Totally agree. That, that was sort of the the key link that made this all come together is when we brought the business valuation body of knowledge into the program and integrated it, that sort of, that was the game changer for it. Ken, what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Probably by email, which is the letter K and my last name, which is S-A-N-G-I-N-A-R-I-O at corporatevalue.net. K Sanginario at corporatevalue.net. That's probably the easiest way. Ken, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I hope you enjoyed that episode with Ken. I really enjoyed how he articulates value and the process. My main three takeaways are the first one being how he describes value and value being the value of your future cash flows and focusing on sustainability, transferability, and predictability of those future cash flows is crucial to value. So anything that you're doing today should make your business more sustainable, more transferable, and more predictable. And if it's not, you're not building value. And the second main point that I really got out of the interview with Ken is that 
It is unacceptable to have consulting or any kind of ideas or any kind of strategic plan that are not measurable. It's just not necessary in today's world where we have the technology and the tools to be able to measure the value that we're getting. So to implement a plan or implement a strategy and just kind of go by the seat of your pants without understanding how you're impacting the future value of your company is just not necessary. And the last key takeaway I'm actually going to take from him. And I think I'm just going to reiterate it because the main point that he made is that every private company is underperforming to some degree. I couldn't agree with him more because public companies are always trying to pursue value, increase a shareholder's value and always driving that direction. So every private business can constantly be doing something to improve the value of their company. And to be able to measure that is important. So Understanding how to open an open mind and how to measure things are a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. And Ken did a great job in the interview explaining that. 